0: hey everyone welcome to another episode of the selah podcast my name is charlie deaver and today we're going to be processing jesus's seventh beatitude and that's found in matthew chapter 5 verse 9. before i read that verse for you i just want to pray a blessing over you that wherever you're at whether it's in your car uh, in your kitchen walking through your neighborhood and you're listening to this i pray that uh, god would just clear the way of anything that would distract you from hearing uh, what he has to say and that his word in this short little verse would would enter into your ears and 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 form your thinking and most importantly it would shape your heart so that you continue to grow in in the likeness of his son so with that being said uh, let me read Matthew chapter 5 verse 9 Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called God's children. Now there's a lot of things that we could talk about with this one, but I want to focus on what I think is Jesus's main focus in light of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And that is that the kingdom of God is at its core a peacemaking community. The kingdom of God is at its core a peacemaking community. One of my favorite movies growing up was the action heist film Italian Job. And if you haven't seen it, I just want to give you a little taste of the plot. Uh, The website IMDB says that John Bridger and Charlie Croker assemble a team for one last heist to steal $35 million in gold bars from a heavily guarded safe in Venice, Italy. After successfully pulling off the heist, a team member Named Steve, driven by greed and jealousy, arranges to take the gold for himself and eliminate the remaining members of the group. Thinking the team is dead, he returns to Los Angeles with the gold. Charlie and the survivors of this betrayal follow Steve to L.A. to get revenge against the traitor. With the help of a professional safecracker, a hacker named Lyle, an explosives guy known as Leftier and the driving skills of handsome Rob, This new team plans and executes a daring heist that weaves through the freeways and the subways of L.A. My favorite part of this movie is is when the main character, played by Mark Wahlberg, is assembling his team. And he handpicks the best thieves from all over. And they each have a different skill that will help them on the mission. And there's a lot of intentionality put into the team he assembles, just as the different skills and abilities of the team are important. There's also a lot of thought put into the dynamics of the team. And a major theme throughout the movie is, are they going to be able to work together? Are they going to be able to trust one another in order to pull this job off? And you may be thinking, what does Italian job have to do with peacemaking? Well, nothing really, but I bring up Italian job because I I want us to read a passage where Jesus assembles a team of people, specifically his 12 disciples. Now there's obviously a lot of differences between the Italian job team and the team that Jesus selects. Jesus isn't planning a heist. He's not enacting revenge on a former colleague. He certainly doesn't select the best and the most capable, but I want us to recognize the thought and the intentionality put into the selection of these 12, particularly when it comes to the relational dynamics of the group. First of all, there's a lot of significance and symbolism to this community of 12 that Jesus has chosen. Jesus makes it clear, and the gospel writers highlight this in their writing, that his ministry is the climax of the story of Israel. And it's the launching of a new people of God that will participate in his mission in the world. One of the ways that Jesus symbolizes this point in God's story is by selecting 12 people who represent the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, Jesus is saying that this is the, the foundation, the starting point for building his kingdom here on earth. And this community of 12 gives us a very important picture of what that kingdom is all about. Now, as we read this, I want you to pay attention to how each of the 12 are identified. Everyone has a name, of course, and and some are given uh, familial ties. They're the brother of so-and-so or or the son of this man, but two are specifically identified by their social group. And this is very intentional. So I'm going to read for you. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And and listen, who are the two that stand out in this list of 12? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First is Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Altheus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Did you catch it? Who stands out in this list? It's Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the zealot, a tax collector? and a zealot. These are two types of people that you would never see together. If you wanted to find two people in Israel who absolutely despise one another, you'd pick a tax collector and a zealot. A little background for this. During this time, the Roman Empire had taken over all of Israel and they installed puppet kings over each region and they recruited Jewish people to collect taxes from their own Jewish neighbors. The taxes were unbearable for most people. Many had to sell their land to wealthy Romans or Greeks and basically become servants on what was their own property. And on top of the high taxes, tax collectors could add on as much as they would like to take for themselves. And they had the Roman soldiers to enforce those taxes if you refused to pay. So tax collectors, they were traitors. They were corrupt. They were the embodiment of the impression and the tyranny of the Roman Empire. And understandably, they were widely hated by their Jewish neighbors. Every day as you walk down your street and you see that tax collector booth, It's a constant reminder of all that is wrong in your country. Now, as as history demonstrates, wherever there is an oppressive, tyrannical government, there are also revolutionaries who try to overthrow it. Many revolutionary groups pop up throughout this time, the most well-known being the Zealots. Zealots were a group of Jewish nationalists who believed that violence was necessary for the freedom and the purity of the Jewish people. Interestingly enough, they formed around 6 AD, right after the Roman governor over Israel began to enforce a new taxation policy. So the origins of this group known as the Zealots was directly tied to the oppressive taxes. Zealots would often ambush Roman villages and camps, killing and destroying as much as they could. They also saw it necessary to kill any Jewish person who they felt were contributing to the oppression of Rome. And no one did this more than the tax collector. So just imagine that first night after Jesus calls the twelve together and they're all camping out together. I can't believe that, that Matthew got very much sleep that night. I mean, what are we to expect when Jesus brings these two together? It's not going to go well, right? I mean, these guys are, are fierce enemies. I was trying to think of an equivalent today and and it's it's hard to do that. But, but the thing that came to mind is like, if you were to start a community of people that were working together towards a particular goal and you decided to bring in uh, someone who is part of the January 6th insurrection and someone that's a part of Antifa. It's, it's, like, it's not like mixing oil and water. It's like mixing fire and gasoline. You're going to get an explosion. There's going to be conflict and things are not going to go well. So why would Jesus do this? Why include two of the fiercest enemies In this small community that's supposed to be the foundations of the kingdom on earth. Why why do that? Well, it's because peace is not only a value of God. It is central to who God is. It's fundamental to his nature. And peacemaking is not one of God's peripheral practices. It's his mission. Peacemaking is what God is doing in the world. His mission is to bring peace to a world that is fractured and divided, to make peace where there is nothing but conflict. So as Jesus brings together this community of 12, this new Israel that will bring God's blessing to the world, he is communicating loud and clear that this kingdom community is at its core a peacemaking community. There are no enemies in the kingdom of God, but it's a place where enemies are reconciled and foes become friends. So the kingdom of God is at its core a peace-making community. So three questions that I want to uh, briefly process together, number 1 being what is peace? Okay, what does Jesus mean when he says peace? Number 2 is what is peace-making? And number three, how can we be a part of this peacemaking community that Jesus is forming? So first question, what is peace? What do we mean when we say peace? It's, it's hard to move towards it if we don't have an image for what it is. Now, it's important to realize that Jesus isn't speaking into a vacuum. When he says peace, there are very specific cultural ideas that come to mind. Jesus lived during a time known as the Pax Romana or Peace of Rome. And that refers to a span of about 200 years that it began just a few years before Jesus started his ministry. So you can imagine the whole new Testament was written during this period called the Pax Romana. So, So much of it is informed by and shaped by this idea. And what this was, is, it was a time where Rome was at the peak of its military and political power, and it dominated the majority of the known world, including the entire Jewish world. And the phrase Pax Romana was seen everywhere. It was inscribed on Roman coins. It was carved on Roman monuments and buildings. It was engraved on the shields and the armor of Roman soldiers as they patrolled every corner of the empire. So for a Jewish person uh, living at that time, it would be hard to hear peace and not think Pax Romana. So during these 200 years of the Pax Romana, there were very few wars, but that was only because Rome was so militarily dominant that it subdued any other military power at the time. Their weaponry and strategy was so advanced that no one stood a chance. They had military force everywhere, and the moment a riot or an uprising began, maybe one by the zealots, they would squash it instantly. So the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, was upheld by a constant threat of violence and destruction. It's not unlike really our situation today, where many historians and military experts believe that the number one deterrent to a World War III is the existence of the nuclear bomb. So the relative peace that we experience today compared to that of the early 1900s where we had two world wars is only upheld by our global military presence and the memory of what America did in Japan in in 1945. So as Jesus enters into this era known as the Pax Romana and he claims to bring peace, it's immediately clear that the peace that Jesus brings is vastly different from the peace of Rome. Jesus's peace is not upheld by violence. It's not to the benefit of some and the expense of others. It's not partial or temporary. The peace that Jesus brings is this idea that the Jewish people refer to as shalom. Okay, shalom is a Hebrew word. It's often translated as peace in English, but it's a concept that is much more significant than what we often think of when we hear peace. Shalom is the intention for all of God's creation. It is the direction in which God has been moving from the beginning. Shalom is God's mission. Cornelius Plantinga Uh, defines shalom in this way. He says the webbing together of God and humans and all of creation and justice and fulfillment and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than a mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. That's Cornelius Plantinga. So we see that God's movement towards Shalom starts in the very first few lines of the Bible. In Genesis 1, it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the face of the earth. It's a picture of chaos, disorder, darkness. But then it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. From that moment in Genesis 1, we see God working faithfully to bring about order to disorder, to bring about restoration to brokenness, to bring light into darkness, to bring peace into chaos, and to bring reconciliation to conflict. And God's movement towards Shalom, it comes to a climax with the arrival of Jesus. Listen to how uh, John begins his gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and nothing was made without him. In him was life, and his life was the light of men. Then it says that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So just as the Spirit of God hovers over the dark, chaotic waters of the earth and brings light and order, Jesus enters into the brokenness and mess of this world, and he brings shalom. Randy Woodley is a a Cherokee Native American, and, and he writes about Jesus's arrival into the world in his book, Shalom and the Community of Creation. And he says this, Jesus, properly understood as Shalom, is the intention of God's once and for all mission. That is the mission of birthing and restoring Shalom to the world in Christ, by Christ, and for the honor of Christ. He continues on to to define Shalom in this way. Shalom is communal holistic and tangible. There is no private or partial shalom. The whole community must have shalom or no one has shalom. As long as there are hungry people in a community that is well-fed, there can be no shalom. Shalom is not for the many while few suffer, nor is it for the few while many suffer. Shalom must be for everyone. So shalom the peace that Jesus brings is not the Pax Romana. It's not military domination. It's not relative peace held up by the threat of violence. Shalom also is not individualistic. It cannot be reduced to our circumstances. It's not merely a sense of predictability or control over your own life. Shalom's not dependent on whether or not your relationships are in order or you feel a general absence of tension. In fact, shalom often requires us to step into tension, to step into conflict. Finally, shalom is is whole-scale, universal restoration. God entering into the deepest and darkest and most broken places and bringing forth redemption, healing, and wholeness. Shalom is the direction of creation. It's God's mission in this world. So what is peace? When we talk about peace, we're talking about shalom. Question number two, what is peacemaking? I want us to go back uh, to thinking about Jesus's context. You know, Jesus existed at a time where there was a lot of tension, lots of conflict. The Jewish people were fractured into many different groups that were becoming increasingly polarized. And there was this constant looming presence of the Roman Empire disrupting the Jewish way of life. Conflict was everywhere in Jesus' time. Maybe we can relate to that a little bit. And there were really two responses to to that conflict um, in the day. and, and, And they're best demonstrated by the Zealots and a group called the Essenes. Now I want to show you... Uh, both of those ways, and and, and as well as showing you how Jesus demonstrates a third way. First, we have the zealots, and, and the way of the zealots is to fight, to dominate, to avenge, and to win. If you have conflict with someone, or you're in a community where there is tension or conflict, one way to eliminate the conflict is by eliminating the enemy. We do this by expelling them from the community or from the relationship, or we suppress them, their opinion and their voice, to the point where they may be physically present, but we've effectively eliminated the conflict by dominating over them. Or, of course, you could do what the zealots do, and that's eliminate your enemy by killing them. This is what the zealous would do in response to the conflict between Israel and Rome, as well as the conflict between what they saw as good Jewish people and impure, corrupt Jewish people like the tax collectors. In the face of conflict, one response is to fight, to dominate. The other response is the way of the Essenes, and that is flight, to retreat from the conflict. The Essenes are are a really interesting group. They were a religious Jewish sect at the time of Jesus, similar to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but you you may have never heard of them because they're never actually mentioned in the Bible, and that is because they were a separatist group that isolated themselves, not only from non-Jews like the Romans, but from other Jewish groups as well. So they would go off into, into the caves and the desert and and really form their own kind of monastic community. They believed that the Jewish nation as a whole was corrupt and irredeemable and they wanted to start a new nation of God's people. The Essenes are most well known to us today for being the community of people who compiled what's known as the Dead Sea Scrolls and those were a, a, a big collection of ancient scrolls discovered in the mid-1900s that really advanced uh, biblical scholarship in our day. So, so at least we have them to thank for that. Um, but that the Essenes, instead of fighting in the face of conflict, they responded to conflict and tension by retreating, by fleeing. You know, both responses by the Zealots and the Essenes, to fight or to flee, they view peace in the same way. Okay, peace is the absence of conflict. That's, that's what they think. And that's why they respond in the way that they respond. And the way to get to peace is by eliminating your enemy. You could do this either by fighting and dominating or fleeing and separating, essentially eliminating yourself from the conflict. But Jesus demonstrates a third way to respond to conflict and tension, and that is peacemaking. Peacemaking assumes that peace is not the absence of conflict, but it's actually forged through conflict. Peacemaking assumes that peace does not require the elimination or the separation from the other. It actually requires the presence of the other. This is why Jesus called Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot it was necessary that his community was founded on the reconciliation of the fiercest of enemies that it was founded on the bringing of peace into the midst of conflict so what what is peacemaking peacemaking is participating in the restoration of shalom in the world we do this in our communities we do this in our lives but here's the problem, I think, with, with the zealots and the Essenes and, and everyone else who pursues a false peace through either fighting or fleeing, and, and that is that they lost sight of who God is and what he was all about from the beginning. God has always been about bringing shalom, bringing reconciliation to all people and to all of creation, even the darkest and most broken and most fractured and divided places. They forgot that God is a peacemaking God and he himself in the face of, of conflict or tension with us, he doesn't destroy us or dominate us. He never retreats from us no matter how bad things get, but he is always constantly and compassionately calling us back into his shalom and he calls his, his kingdom community to do the same thing. So what is shalom? It is the participating, is participating in the restoration or what is peacemaking? It is participating in the restoration of shalom in this world. Finally, last question I want to process is how can we be a peacemaking community? Okay, if peacemaking is core to God's mission, then it should be core to the mission of his church. Unfortunately, I I think, many of us would agree that the church is often more well known for fighting and fleeing in the face of conflict rather than peacemaking. We fight by attempting to force our values and beliefs on the rest of the world, or we flee and we isolate from the world and just stay separated as much as possible. In the in the age of social media, we have the uh, benefit of doing both, right? We can surround ourselves with with only people who think and act like us, while at the same time lobbying attacks at faceless enemies on the internet. In the face of conflict or tension, we fight or flee. But if we are to be a community of people committed to God's kingdom and his mission, then we have to pursue this third way. We have to pursue the way of Jesus. The way of peacemaking. So, how can we follow Jesus's example and become a peacemaking community? I want to share with you uh, three steps of peacemaking, and this is from a book written by John Huckins and Jer Swigart. It's called *Mending the Divides*. You can check it out. It's a great book if you want to explore peacemaking more. Um, but I just want to share with you these these three steps that they offer that, that they would say are essential to um, peacemaking or being a peacemaker. The first step is to see, to see. We see both the world and others in the way that God sees them. So, so how do we see the world? If, if we are to be a peacemaker, then we see that things in this world are not the way they ought to be. We know that this world was created for Shalom and we recognize the absence of Shalom. We can't be a peacemaker and be oblivious or indifferent to the pain and the hurt of those in the world around us. It's not possible. Peacemakers, they, they can walk down their block or enter into their workplace or wherever else they spend their time, and they can identify the pain. They can identify the longing, they can identify the sorrow, around them. Peacemakers see the world the way God sees them. They see the hurt and the pain and the brokenness the way God sees it. Peacemaking also informs how we see people, right? We don't see people as enemies or as outsiders. We, we, we look at conflict or tension, be it our own or, or that of others, and we don't think, okay, who's, who's with me and who's against me? Who's in the wrong and, and who's in the right? That's not how a peacemaker looks at people. Instead, a peacemaker sees the humanity and the dignity and the image of God in all people, regardless of what side they might fall on of, of any particular conflict or tension. A peacemaker sees that all people were made for and truly long for shalom, even if they don't articulate it in that way. Maybe they say peace. Maybe they see, say, equality or equity. Maybe they say justice. Maybe they say rest. But what they truly long for is shalom. So, a peacemaker, uh, first they see. That's the first step. The second is to immerse, or or in our community, we like to use the word incarnate, right? As a culture, we tend to avoid conflict and tension and, and uncomfortable situations as much as possible. Of course, there are some people who seek it out, but in general, we don't like to spend time with people whom we disagree with or in spaces that, that are, are painful or uncomfortable. On top of that, many American Christians, they, we, we have this fear of spending too much time around people who think, act, and believe differently than we do. And we label certain groups and spaces as, as untouchable. So we, we just separate ourselves from them. And, and guys, I, ha- I have to say, this is so clearly counter to what Jesus taught and how he lived, right? Jesus immersed himself in the lives of those who were different, he identified with those who were deemed to be untouchable by the religious. This is what the incarnation is all about it's about entering into the everyday life and the world of those who are different and identifying with them. You can't be a peacemaker from a distance. We must immerse ourselves into the hurt and into the pain and into the conflict in the world around us. So wherever Shalom is absent, that is where the peacemaker goes. A peacemaker immerses themselves in the world. And finally, The third step is to contend. Contending for shalom is the most difficult and costly step in the peacemaking process. And it can really only be done after we've fully immersed ourselves in the lives and the stories of those around us. Contending is when an individual or preferably a community of peacemakers sacrifice their time, their energy, their resources, and even their own lives for the sake of healing, reconciliation, and restoration. Contending requires proximity. It requires seeing the humanity and the dignity in others. It requires putting the well-being and the flourishing of others ahead of our own. And it requires commitment and longevity. As we'll see later on as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, contending is, is when a peacemaker walks the extra mile. It's, it's when a peacemaker turns the other cheek. When someone offers their coat when they were only asked for a shirt. That is how we contend for Shalom. So if we want to be a peacemaking community that takes part in God's mission to restore Shalom to this world, then we need to be people who see others and the world the way God sees them. We need to be people who immerse ourselves in the pain and the brokenness of the world the way Jesus did. And we need to be people who contend for shalom in places and relationships and in lives where shalom is absent. So for a practical example of, of how this looks in someone's life, I want you to listen in to an interview that uh, we did with our friend, Libby Wasserbeck. So please enjoy that.
1: I am a teacher, special education teacher. And I have, before I came to this part of the country, I was living in Colorado for about 16 years, spent about 10 years in Colorado Springs, and then about another six years up in the mountains. And I got connected, some of you probably have heard, Charlie, talk about Forge America. Uh, I did a Forge residency with the Austin group, and Terry Ishii, who's one of the Forge leaders, always likes to refer to me as the OG of the online hub because I had to do it out of necessity. I, and so they tested everything out on me, and, and that's how that online hub came about. But um, I, long story about how I ended up in Austin, and got connected with that. But through Forge, um, I always tell people Forge really didn't give me new ideas. It reinforced ideas God had already been placing in my heart. Um, For many years, I had seen what was happening in the church. And even as a um, a young adult myself in college, um, back in the 90s, I, uh, I had real issues with how the church treated people that they considered unholy or... Um they would march how they would marginalize them even on campus because then I'm trying to remember, I think campus groups then we had and at University of Oklahoma we did different weeks, and then like there was Jesus Week or whatever, and all the Christian clubs, and then uh there and it was just the LGB group. It was not um LGBTQ plus and and so they would have their group, and I would just see how. Um, they would be trying to advocate for their groups and stuff, and how Christians would be so hateful towards them. And I didn't really know what to do about it because in my faith tradition, that was acceptable, but it was not acceptable to me. So that kind of put me on a journey of um, trying trying to I ended up moving to Colorado and stuff after you know I was out of college and stuff. Um, Colorado was very secular. And so there was a lot more of those conversations happening in the church there. Over the years, it just became more and more unacceptable to me that the church hated on people and that the church, there were marginalized. As a single woman who's never been married, I often felt targeted. And I was in churches where women were not allowed in leadership. And yet men would always come to me for advice about things or ask me to facilitate something. And, and so um, I would often feel like just, I don't know, where my place is in the church as a single woman. And then I was supposed to go to India. Another long story. Ended up back in Colorado and up in the mountains working for a YMCA of the Rockies. Well, the YMCA nowadays is very inclusive, very diverse organization. In that, in that role I had in that organization, I met people from all over the world, of all different religions, and, I mean, a, a very diverse group of people. And I, uh, it was interesting there because, again, when people found I was a Christian, the automatic assumption was that I was a conservative evangelical. At that point, I was not. And so, um, as I would connect with different groups and different people on campus i became really good friends with a lot of our lgbtq members and um i just that was kind of i had stepped out of the conservative circles of colorado springs at that point moved up to the mountains and um so for my journey you know charlie's talking about pace making i just began to be friends with them like with no other agenda except that i just enjoyed hanging out with them you know like just being a friend and um and hearing their stories really broke my heart, like how they had been treated by the church. And I know, I was like, this is not it. The, the Jesus that I know, the Jesus that I have had in an intimate relationship with my entire life, I do not believe would be okay with how the church has treated people. And many groups, you know, there's many marginalized groups in our society. And he really began to, to bring about in me a desire to understand those marginalized groups, and to figure out how the church could rectify that situation. And boy, was that a hard thing to start having to have those discussions with friends and family about the changes I was going through. And that was probably about eight to ten years ago that that shift started happening in my own life. Now it's it's just a normal part of my life to have friends of many different. I have friends who are Trump supporters, ultra-conservative. And I have friends who are socialists on the opposite side of the spectrum and everything in between of different marginalized groups. And I love that. Not all of them are Christians. Some of them want nothing to do with the church. And I accept them right where they're at with that. I don't try to force anything on them. And I just love them for who they are. But I think in Forge we have it, I think it's called the Imago Day or something like that. I can't, I'm not sure if I pronounced that yeah. right. Um, I'm a special education teacher. I don't see my, child, my children's disability first. I see their, what, the image of God in them. And I have to remind myself of that, because sometimes their disability is very severe, And you know, that could be the focus. That's not all of who they are. You know, like God created them. God wants relationship with people, regardless of all the things that we like to, you know, bring up. And I, that's, that's kind of the shift I've made, and it's been hard because a lot of people don't understand that still, and that's okay. I accept that they don't understand that, and I try to meet them where they are at. Um, but for me, like I'm very involved with the um, Lutheran Episcopalian ministry on the UT campus, and the chaplain shared a few weeks ago that this is one of the, it is the number one most hostile campus in the United States for the LGBTQ community and I was like why (laughs) you know like I don't understand that and so um I had asked God I was like why do I feel a burden to be a part of this group on campus I'm taking some class some coursework there for my for my teaching endorsement but um and I feel like that's why because like I want to create safe places for all people to come and explore their faith in God like I think Jesus wants to meet everyone where they're at. And what the Holy Spirit does with us after that is up to him. You know, I, I'm not I'm not there to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm there to introduce them to Christ, who I think loves every single person on this planet and wants to have a relationship with us. And um that is what I try to live out now. And I'm finding there's always new groups of people that do feel marginalized by the church. And um to also just try to push the church and have those conversations with family members and friends who don't aren't able to do that yet and and I find that building that relationship with them I'm able to share why I've made the shift that I've made and it's pushing their boundaries too to think about are you know are we impeding people's connection to god With what, how we're treating them, and the answer is big fat yes in a lot of ways. But I think there are groups of people trying to change that, and I want to be a part of that group. And I don't always get it right. I don't think I probably don't get it right a lot of the time. But um, I'm trying. I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to be incarnate in those all groups of people to understand different perspectives and to encourage people to have peace with other people, that you can have relationship with people and vastly different beliefs about something. and still love that person. still love the image of God, that they are a child of God, that God created them. So that's a little bit about my journey.
0: Thanks, Libby. Can you give Libby a hand. I just love, and you you can stand here, go if you want, but I just want to affirm you, and I'm going to pray for you. Actually, stay here. Don't walk off, because I want to pray for you. Um, I I love uh, just you you so clearly see, right? Like, you so clearly see the brokenness. You see those that have been harmed uh, and pushed out um, and ostracized, uh, particularly by Christians, but uh, I know it happens all over. Um, and you and you've just entered into that space, and I just love uh, that you do that. You seem to do that just nonstop. And then just past conversations, though they've they've been brief, I know you've, you 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 uh, have you hear people's stories, and you have a lot of frustrations, right, with the church and the way the church has fallen short, and they're justified. But you have not given up on the church either, and and I think that's so awesome. And you really are a bridge um, between the church that has uh, uh, often failed and failed too many times and those that have been failed by the church. And so thank you for that. And that's what it looks like to contend, to have those hard conversations um, with people that aren't representing Jesus the way that you know they should, um, but to not give up and, and uh, to always fight for those that have been hurt.